Exploited workers and human trafficking cannot be overlooked. The statistics are hard to confirm, but it's estimated that there are 20 to 30 million slaves in the world today. It's also been estimated that victims of modern-day slavery worldwide generates $150 billion in illegal profits every year, 75% of them in the labor industry and 22% in the sex trade. 1.2 million children are enslaved through forced labor, and contrary to what they may think, my grandkids are not included in that number. <laughs> but seriously, the plight of oppressed and exploited workers and all aspects of human trafficking should be of great concern to all of us. On a personal level, we can buy fair trade items, avoid buying things that are produced in slave-like conditions, and push for the enforcement of laws against human trafficking and prostitution. But what should the church be doing? How should the plight of the enslaved and oppressed be addressed? What do the apostles have to say about it? The answer might surprise you. A similar yet much worse situation existed in Jesus' day. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. One person out of every three in the city of Rome was a slave, and these were slaves indeed, with absolutely no rights whatsoever. They came from all walks of life and included some of the most educated people of the day. But they were all officially viewed as disposable property. They become slaves in a variety of ways. Many were prisoners of war or condemned criminals. Some were slaves because of uncollectible debts, and others were kidnapped and held as slaves by brute force. Some had been sold into slavery by their parents, and many had simply been born into slavery. It was into this world that Jesus came preaching the gospel to the poor, proclaiming release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He came to set free those who were downtrodden and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It was to this society that Paul declared that in Christ there is no distinction between circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and freeman. Slaves enjoyed equality of status within the church, but they were still slaves in society. Why the disparity? Wasn't the church to permeate society? Wasn't there a need for change in the Roman Empire at large? Of course there was. But it may surprise you to learn how that change came and the instruction that was given to Christian slaves to facilitate that change. 
You know, Paul dealt with this matter in several of his letters, as does Peter. And we'll touch on some of them this morning, but we're going to focus our attention on what Paul had to say about this to Timothy. And he begins with some surprising things to say to those who were serving under the yoke. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let all those who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefits are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Paul's word to Christian slaves is quite simply that their masters are to be regarded as worthy of all honor. Peter carries this even a step further. When he wrote, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. The apostolic instruction to slaves is to respect those who have authority over them, whether they are Christians or not, and whether they are reasonable or not. You know, it would be a real temptation for a Christian slave to regard an unbelieving master as unworthy of service, to even have contempt for the one who sought to keep him in chains after being set free by Christ. After all, the slave was now a child of the king. Why should he be the slave of a pagan? Still, Paul says, regard your master as worthy of all honor. Respect him as your master. Respect his authority over you, even if you find it difficult to respect him as a person. And that, I think, is something we must all learn to do. We must separate position from personality. We're all called to be under authority. And while it may be difficult to respect someone as a person, we must still respect him for his position, whether his authority over us is governmental, economic, social, familial, or religious in nature. And, as Paul points out here, our response to those in authority over us reflects on the very name of God. If our relationship to Christ leads us to be insolent and rebellious, what does that say to the world about our Lord and his teaching? Paul then goes on to instruct slaves who have Christian masters not to be disrespectful, to not assume that just because they are brothers, they have no obligation to those in authority over them. And instead of seeking to take advantage of the relationship in Christ by doing less for their masters, Paul says they should serve them all the more because by doing so, they are benefiting a fellow believer, a beloved brother. This is interesting teaching. But doesn't there seem to be something missing here? Doesn't it seem strange that Paul does not speak out concerning the injustice 
of human slavery and issue a call to action? If you were in his shoes or sandals, what would you have done? Surely you would have spoken up on behalf of the oppressed, even if it would have added fuel to the smoldering spirit of rebellion in Rome. You probably wouldn't have actually encouraged 60 million slaves to challenge the armies of Rome, but you might have at least called for civil disobedience. And you may have gone ahead and risked alienating millions of slave owners against the claims of Christ by undermining their socioeconomic base because they should have recognized the immorality of slavery. Is that what you would have done? Or would you have done exactly what Paul did? Instruct the slaves to be the best slaves they could be and even go the extra mile if their master was a Christian because they would be benefiting a brother. And then go on to teach, as Paul did in his letter to the Ephesians, that Christian masters should give up threatening their slaves and do good for them because both slave and master have the same master in heaven. Would you, in sending a runaway slave who had become a Christian back to his master, tell the master you were returning him no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother, as Paul did Philemon? Don't you see the wisdom of Paul's approach? It didn't immediately set the slaves free, at least those who might have survived a bloody revolution, but it did so change slaves and masters that eventually slavery disappeared from the Roman Empire. If the church in America had followed this approach and had taught that in God's eyes there is no distinction between slave and free, and that Christian slaves and Christian masters are to treat one another like brothers, even on plantations, there may have never been a civil war. And slavery, as a legal institution, may very well have disappeared on its own, as it did in Rome. But still, some might argue that while this might work over the long haul, what about those who would die as slaves waiting for change to come? Surely this isn't fair to them. We must right the wrong, and we must do it now. And what about the slaves who didn't see it the way Paul did, who didn't want to wait, who wanted their rights and wanted them now? What should we say to them? The same thing Paul said about godliness under the yoke. Verses 3 through 5. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, 
While most commentators generally separate these verses on godliness from Paul's teaching on slavery that we find in the first two verses of this chapter, and translators start a new paragraph here, I'm convinced this whole section should be kept together. In his letter to Titus, Paul definitely ties these same themes together. In Titus 2, 9 through 13, we read, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. In that passage, Paul ties together the need for subjection with a prohibition against argumentation, some teaching on godliness, our present situation, and our future hope. And all these tie directly to what he's saying in Timothy about being under the yoke of slavery. He begins by saying that if anyone advocates a different teaching on this matter, he's not only in opposition to the sound word of Christ and the doctrine that conforms to godliness or godlikeness, but he's also puffed up and in reality understands nothing. In fact, he implies that such a person really doesn't have the slave's interest at heart anyway, but simply likes to argue and keep the pot stirred, like some today who make a career out of speaking on behalf of an oppressed or historically oppressed segment of society. Anyone with any sense at all could see the end result of fomenting revolution in Rome. To even advocate such would do nothing more than stir up envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, and constant friction between unthinking men who refuse to accept the truth. Paul wouldn't even countenance a differing opinion on this matter of submission to those in authority. And he refused to do so because those who advocate such have surely missed the point of godliness. Godliness, Paul points out, isn't intended to be a means of personal gain. The reason for becoming like God isn't to improve your station in life. In fact, just the opposite should be true. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, we read, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Godliness, or God-likeness, 
is having a servant's heart, not rebelling against servanthood. It's yielding our rights, not demanding them. But can a man have a good life under the yoke of slavery? Can he find contentment under a yoke of hardship and injustice? Paul says that he can. Verses 6 through 8. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. While the purpose of godliness is not personal gain, it does bring great gain when through it one finds contentment. You know, the world looks for contentment in things and the freedom to use things. But it never finds it. When asked how much is needed to be content, a truly honest man once said, just a little more. And that is certainly true of things. The world says you only go around once in life, so you've got to grab all you can. And if some is good, more is better, and too much is just right. But when a man views this temporary life from an eternal perspective, his evaluation of things changes radically. He's able to say with Paul and with Job, I came into this life with nothing and I shall leave with nothing. So the things I do or don't accumulate and the physical freedoms and pleasures I enjoy now are really of no consequence. What really matters is laying up treasure in heaven, for that's where I'll be for eternity. So I can be content in this life when my simplest needs have been met. And let's not kid ourselves about our needs either. At the turn of the 20th century, a survey revealed that Americans held 16 things to be essential to life. A sociologist repeated the survey in 1976 and discovered Americans then felt they needed 98 things. I can't imagine how many we feel we need now with our dependence on technology and our smartphones. Paul cuts our needs down to just two things, food and covering. He says we should be content if we have food to eat and something to protect us from the elements, which includes clothing and shelter of some sort. That's all we need. And with that, he says we should be content. Is that really possible? Should Paul really expect us to be content with just food and covering? Absolutely. He was. And he shared with us the secret of contentment in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. 
I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That last verse is one that gets pulled out of context all the time. Athletes like that. Businessmen like that. Those with goals like that. Paul is saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That means I can get along. I can be happy. I can be content. With all kinds of things or with nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Sometimes it's really hard to be content with a lot of stuff. Because we're worried about it all the time. And obviously it's hard to be content with nothing. Because we think we need more. But Paul said he had learned contentment, no matter his circumstances, and had done so by drawing on the strength of Christ. He could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. In fact, he could even be content without having his basic needs met. He was content even when his stomach was growling. And he wrote this while he was in prison. So yes, we can find contentment. Even under the yoke of bondage. We can find contentment by simply trusting that the one who saved us will see to it that our needs are met. And if we view our needs from an eternal perspective... We can even be content without our basic physical needs being met. If we starve to death or die of exposure, our discomfort will only last a second compared to the eternal blessings that death will open up for us. Man, that changes our perspective on life. And what we need. We can be content. Under the yoke of slavery. Or oppression. Or prejudice. Or employment. Or unemployment. Or housework. Or sickness. Or whatever it may be. As long as we are also under another yoke. The yoke of Christ. And Jesus invited us to come under his yoke. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. He's the one who carried the cross. And yet he said, my yoke is easy and my load is light. Jesus invited us to yoke up with him. And in case you don't know what a yoke is, it's a curved wooden bar that was used to tie 
two oxen together so they could pull is one. I think what Jesus is saying is that he wants us to yoke up with him and to share his burden for eternal things. And if we will, he will be with us as we face the burdens of this life as well. Tied to Jesus, we can serve under any yoke. We can be godly under any yoke. And we can be content under any yoke. All we need to do is take our eyes off the things of this world and keep them on Jesus. <laughs>